0: Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for another day to have the chance to do this thing together as your adopted ones. You saved us, Father, from sin and death. We were trapped. We were in an orphanage, so to speak, in chains, and you adopted us into your kingdom all by your grace through faith in your precious Son. We are forever grateful for this, Father. And we come together today, right now, celebrating you and your Son and your Spirit, celebrating all you've done for us, rejoicing in that, and remembering that's what's really important in this life. Father, we also right now pray for all of those who are sick in our congregation, especially those who couldn't be here today, We ask that you strengthen them, that you heal them according to your will, and most of all, that you give them your peace that goes beyond all comprehension. It's only found in your Son. Father, please bless this message, guide us, and teach us by your Holy Spirit, as only you can do. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. All right. Well, first of all, I just want to thank Pastor again for the privilege of uh, stepping in here and standing behind his pulpit for him. Our title, again, is Plainly Stated Doctrine in the Book of Acts, Part 2. We started this on Thursday. And between our pulpit lessons and our Wednesday night roundtable Bible studies, the Book of Acts has been a big help to us in clarifying some things that aren't even found in the New Testament letters. And this is why we don't base our truth on one part of the Bible. This is why we have to look at it as a whole and visit it as a whole and follow the Spirit's leading, of course, where we need to be at the given time. But there are things in Acts that are revealed that are plainly stated that are not really found elsewhere. And it's the neat thing about a book like the book of Acts, because it's different than every other book. It fills in some blank, so to speak, between the four Gospels and the letters to the churches. So it really is valuable in seeing the whole picture. And I hope you see that in this series. All the letters in the New Testament from the apostles to the churches are wonderful, stupendous, uh, knowledge-filled things for us to learn from. But as Pastor often puts it, they're forensic in nature. So on Thursday, I put the definition for this word on the board because I I needed some clarification, honestly, too, on what he was getting at. Forensic, according to dictionary.com, means pertaining to, connected with, or used in courts of law or public discussion and debate. So I get the picture in my soul, if you will, of... um, the art of building a case, the art of making an argument and defending a point, which is what the New Testament letters were often all about. They were geared towards a certain aspect of the gospel or a certain attack on a certain church. So in other words, the church letters didn't tell the whole story of the whole gospel in just one letter. It had a certain emphasis. So the New Testament letters often look back on the gospel that was given by Jesus himself, instructing believers and defending the gospel from certain attacks. But let's remember, as is always vitally important, on the board, the big picture. The New Testament letters were written years later to the very same churches the apostles founded and built in the book of Acts. So, Put all the puzzle pieces together, you know? It's so easy to separate things out. This is all like one whole story, if you will. And like Paul went on these missionary trips to Galatia and and Thessalonica and Ephesus and Corinth and Rome, etc., etc. All the places, um, all the letters in the New Testament written to these specific churches. He wrote them years later to help them out. But we learn about the initial dealings with these churches in the book of Acts. And it was the apostles actually living out the gospel, which is really neat to see. Because here we are, you know, trying to obey the Great Commission, trying to follow the Lord's commands for us and spread His good news while we're here. And sometimes you're at a loss of exactly how to do it. Uh, What does this look like? I can can read the New Testament letters and see the doctrine and the the truth therein, and uh, it explains the gospel, but what does it look like? How how do I present it properly? And that's what Acts reveals in a wonderful, uh, simple way. And guess what? The Holy Spirit decided to record it in his word, the book of Acts. So it's God's word. So we cling to it that way. And when we see plain statements made in the book of Acts that are undeniable, that um, aren't confusing whatsoever, and they're plainly stated as truths, we've got to accept them with the faith of a child. We can't be tiptoeing around and be like, well, you know, let's get this, let's intellectualize this. Let's count this out because we really don't like that statement. So let's kind of count this out by this other verse and this other verse. Sometimes you have to just accept what's stated. There's no guessing with many statements made in the book of Acts. So rejoice in that. Just be like, all right, what does it say? And you know what? By faith, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to just ignore it because it's inconvenient or it's not what I always thought before. And remember, with the faith of a child, anybody, regardless of background or newness to the faith or whatever your weakness you think is, Anybody can receive these plain statements in humility and rejoice and and, and act on them and bring glory to God just like a small child could who just follows the commands. Amen? That's really what God's been getting at in our church for the last few years. Why are we complicating this? Why don't we just obey with the faith of a child? It's not about us. It's about Him. And the simple things are the best, and the simple things are the things we have to guard you know, with all of our lives, so to speak, on the board. Second Corinthians 11.3. Just remember this as we get into this series again. Paul said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Satan's very crafty. He'll try to complicate the Word of God for you. He'll try to complicate the Word of God. Not not just the stuff in the world to distract you. He'll try to mess with the Word of God in your soul. So be on guard. Guard the simplicity. Guard the purity. The simple things that you know are true and you know you can obey by faith. So on Thursday... We visited quite a few plainly stated truths. And we're going to do a quick rundown of Thursday. So I'm going to go kind of fast here in the beginning because we just kind of revisit some of these verses. And then we'll get into a few more before we close. But I suggest you listen to Thursday's lesson online if you want more details or commentary on these particular statements. So first of all, on the board, plainly stated doctrine as in Acts 124. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen. The key statement being, The Lord knows the hearts of all men. It's a very plain statement. And that should humble every man, by the way. And we also noted on Thursday that no man is hidden from God's sight. The same idea. And no part of man is hidden from God's sight. God doesn't just see the overt. He sees the inner thoughts, what the Bible would call the heart. So go to uh, Hebrews 4.13 in your Bibles. Hebrews 4.13. Again on the board in Acts one twenty four, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. That's as plainly stated as it gets. And Hebrews 4.13 just backs up the same principle. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things are open and laid bare. Pretty scary if he's not a gracious God. Pretty scary if you're not on his side, if you don't repent and trust in him. But he covers our transgressions when we do repent and trust in him. But he knows all things. There's no way of getting around that. And he knows the hearts of all men. And what should this plainly stated truth spur on in man? What kind of healthy fear does the verse on the board give a man? Hopefully it gives him the proper fear of the Lord to repent and turn to Christ. As we go out and spread the gospel in obedience to the Great Commission, it would be wise of us to bring up the simple, pure truth that God knows the heart. Is that part of your witness? Is that part of your gospel? On the board, you know, you might say something like this when sharing the gospel. You say you have no sin? Well, the Bible says God knows the heart. In fact, Jesus said, if you even think something, you've actually done it in God's eyes. Do you think maybe you need to repent towards God, my friend? So, utilize these plainly stated truths to plainly state to people why they need to repent. We also saw in Acts 2.21, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, hallelujah, right? Plain, wonderful truth, not based on our own ability or merits, based on His grace and mercy by faith alone. So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But as we also talked about on Thursday, if we synthesize this with our first verse, the fact that the Lord knows the hearts of all men, we see that this calling out to the Lord must be done with an honest heart these truths they, they coexist. they're both true so at this point it's good to remember where believing takes place so turn again in your bibles to romans 10 verse 9 romans 10 verse 9 <coughs> so while it is true that everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved It's also true that God looks at the heart. He knows if someone is um, playing games, deceiving themselves, um, etc. And as we've been studying, it's the whole man that's involved in turning to the Lord, not just the mind. So Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This came up on Thursday. Do you see how both the mouth and the heart are involved in salvation or are involved in calling on the Lord to be saved? On the board, the mouth without the heart is dangerous territory. That's where the lip service of religion is not accepted by the Lord. You can use his name all you want. If you haven't repented in your heart, God knows it. The demons even stated it with their mouths throughout the Gospels. I know who you are, Jesus. You're the Holy One of God. What are you going to do to me? They acknowledged the fact that Jesus was the Lord, and they were unsaved because they didn't have a repentance in their heart. They didn't believe in their heart that He was their Lord and Savior. So the mouth, again, without the heart, is dangerous territory. That's where the lip service of religion is not accepted by the Lord. We were also reminded on Thursday that the Lord called us first. We didn't call Him first. So on the board, His call to us opened our ears and even empowered us to call upon Him to be saved. More plainly stated doctrine in verse 39 of Acts 2 for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So while it's true that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, even that is something man can't take credit for. Even that is something God spurs on in man by him calling us first. And you remember 1 John 4:19, we love because he first loved us. Similar idea. No man loves God on his own. God loved him first. God opened his heart first. So again, on the board, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself, those are the ones who are saved. The love of the Lord is the initiator in salvation. We must never, ever, ever forget that. So we take zero credit in anything we've even responded with. Even He even spurs man on to call out to him. On the board, man's call out to God to be saved is actually a response to the call of the Holy Spirit. It's the Lord who reaches out to man. You know, sometimes a man might think he called out to God, but Scripture says it's not really what happened. God woke you up first. God convicted you first. God called you first. And that is another wonderful thing, again, because it avoids man from taking any credit for his own faith. God forbid we take any credit. So we see this in Acts 2.39 and also in Acts 2.47. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts 2.47. And I believe we'll be staying in Acts for a while. Acts 2.47. Again, on the board, man's call out to God to be saved is actually a response to the call of the Holy Spirit. It's the Lord who reaches out to save man. Acts 2.47. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord was doing it. And yet, while only the call from the Lord can add to our number, Acts 2.21 is simultaneously true. Again, look at Acts 2.21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So again, what do we make of this? The Spirit's been on, on us with this for weeks now. We rejoice. We don't get frustrated, confused. How can both these things be true? No, we rejoice in the supernatural. We rejoice that this is a work of God, and we rejoice that we don't understand it all. Because otherwise, He wouldn't be God if we, un- we could understand it all. We rejoice that He leaves these open gaps in our understanding so that we can give him all the glory and just humbly turn to him for the answers. Again, this is supernatural God. God's reaching out to the spiritually deaf and convicting man's heart to a response that saves. That's what God does. So don't try to figure out the stuff in between, as Pastor has said in the past. Just accept these truths with the faith of a child. Something else that came out on Thursday... Because God looks at the heart, he cannot be mocked. He cannot be fooled. Think about this. Nobody can successfully give God lip service. Successfully. Anyone can give give lip service if they so choose, right? I'll follow you. I love you. Anyone can do that without meaning it. But you can't successfully give God lip service and have him be you know, in the dark. You can't slip it by him. And we talked about on Thursday, isn't it great to have a sovereign king who's gracious and kind, but yet doesn't accept being mocked, who's not a pushover and won't be taken advantage of. That should give us great security that this is our God. He's not like, he's not going to, you know, miss something and, and it negatively affect his children, he knows it all, he's got it all, and he doesn't not not accept things like lip service. Otherwise what you have is a father who says what's true for his household but is unwilling to back it up. He's unwilling to make sure the truth is the truth and n- not allow you know confrontations against the truth, not allow lies to slip by and be accepted. That's our father in heaven that's the perfect stability we have as his children so we saw again on thursday our lord is both justice and mercy he's the lion and the lamb we don't have a king who's weak in any way but he's full of grace and truth not just full of grace he's also full of truth there's nothing missing Some people mistake his kindness for weakness. And they refuse to repent because of it. They think, oh, God's love. You know, he overlooks everything I do. I'm just going to live for myself and just ignore him, basically. I don't really even need Jesus. I'll take him on the side, like just in case, because everyone's doing it. But, you know, I know I'm a good person. I know God, you know, is happy with my life for the most part. So that place of deception is a a place of a lack of repentance, and that's a grave mistake because God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He demands a turning to him. And so just thank God he's as awesome as he is in every facet. The Lord calls and saves and shares his very own righteousness. Think about this king that we have. He shares his very own righteousness freely with those who are humbly willing to drop their own righteousness. So there is a requirement on man. You can't accept the king's righteousness if you, if you hold on to your own righteousness. There's only one righteous robe you can wear. Man has to choose which one it's going to be. We've seen this uh, over and over the last two weeks in Luke 18, 9 through 14. And remember also, it's all by and for His sovereign good pleasure. This whole salvation thing, this whole God calling us before we call Him, this is all by and for His sovereign good pleasure as the King. So all we can do is be on our knees in in gratitude as believers, and that's our proper role. We saw another plainly stated doctrine, as found in Acts 3.26 on the board. For you first, God raised up his servant Jesus and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. That's not the first thing we think of when we hear Jesus came for us, that he came to turn us from our wicked ways. But there we see it plainly stated as one of the objectives of our Lord. We're all born in sin. We've all personally sinned against Him as well. And He wants us to turn from that and turn to Him. That's it. It's really just a free will issue. Remember, Jesus is full of grace and truth. He was never one without the other. He never lacks one. He never compromised truth Even though he was treating men with great kindness and compassion. Do you see that? In his whole ministry, he never compromised truth. Even though he was the kindest, gentlest, uh, most compassionate man that ever lived, he never compromised truth. What does that tell us? It tells us that he made clear that he wanted people to turn from the wicked ways. Even though he made that um, conviction to people with love. So on the board, we saw on Thursday in Luke 5.32, when he was eating dinner with the tax tax collectors and the prostitutes, he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? Repentance. He wasn't ignoring the sin like, ah, it's no big deal. I'm not even going to mention it. He wasn't doing that because that wouldn't be truth. You see, if you love your children, you tell them the truth, don't you? you don't say, "Ah, eh, I don't want to offend them because so we have a buddy-buddy relationship." No, you don't. If you love them, you tell them, "If you keep going down this path, you're going to suffer." And how does a parent do that? A good parent in love. And maybe in sternness at times, which is love. Can be love. So, the Lord even calling the "quote unquote sinners," those who were humble that gathered around him to listen. He called them to repentance. And as I said on Thursday, I just picture a father eating dinner with his children, expressing his love and care for them, and teaching them not to go forward in their wicked ways that are going to hurt themselves and their father. And that's where humility comes in on our part. But make no mistake, Jesus was calling them to repent. And thus the Lord's call in Mark 1.15 Part B, repent and believe the good news. People in contemporary Christianity, today's Christianity in our day and age, don't want to talk about the call to repentance because they think it's somehow an attack on God's love. But on the contrary, the call to repent is a call from love. It's like, I don't want to see you suffer anymore. And I don't want to see you suffer eternally. There is a judgment. Come with me, repent. Turn from that, come to me, and I'll take care of you. The call to repent is a call from love. He is seeking to bless man by turning him from his wicked ways. That's what it says in our verse. You can see it in your Bible again, Acts 3:26. You can turn there, Acts 326. It says, God God raised up his servant Jesus and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. He's seeking freedom for man from the bondage to sin and therefore death. So in our job as, as his ambassadors, why not honestly tell people that one reason Jesus came was for the plainly stated doctrine we just read? to turn us from our wicked ways. Do you remember what the Lord himself commissioned Paul to do? We saw this on Thursday on the board in Acts 2617 b through 18 in the NIV. Jesus said, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Do you see how turning is a requirement? It's by grace through faith, but that's our, that's our call. That's man's accountability. Turn from darkness to light, from sin to righteousness, from self to Christ. Turn from the dead to true life. That's what the Lord told Paul to do as part of his commission. And this theme runs throughout the Old and New Testaments. I hope you've been seeing it as you read your Bibles. It's so simple. God's, it's not a mystery. God's like, stop being wicked and turn to me in humility. It's like everywhere. And you see, those who choose to stay in wickedness are those who refuse to believe. That's the, that's the sign. That's the, the fruit that goes right along with it. It's so simple. Thus the call to repent and have faith in Christ. We're also told plainly in the book of Acts about predestination. And this fits right in the fact, right in with the fact that God calls us and elects us. We're predestined. We were elected before you know, creation even came about. And God knew it all beforehand and decided it all beforehand. On the board in Acts 4, 27 through 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. All the evil at the hands of these men... The way they harmed Christ was predestined to occur. We know from this plain statement that the Lord even predestined the cross. He predestined it all to happen for the sake of our salvation. He knew it was necessary. Turn back in your Bibles to Acts 2.23. Just as support to this plainly stated truth, Acts 2.23 This man, talking about Jesus again delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death but the wonderful truth is that this was predetermined and God knew it all way ahead of time We left off on Thursday with some plainly stated doctrine found in Acts chapter 5. Turn to Acts 5, verse 27. So now we'll begin to slow down a little bit. Acts 5, 27. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And that's where we paused on Thursday for a minute. Here we see that as believers, obeying the call of the Great Commission, we must obey God rather than men when we're told not to talk about Christ. And that will be a challenge for each of us in this room. Anyone listening online, any believer, it's going to be a challenge to you one day. You're going to be faced with that challenge. Where somebody says, don't talk about that in this environment or to my family or whatever. Don't talk about him. And you're going to have that decision to make. So, be ready for it. But in context, this verse you might quote when you're in that situation. I must obey God rather than men. I'm sorry. I must obey God rather than men. However, some people use this statement for their own purposes, as came up on Thursday. Some people just desire to disobey a certain authority, so they'll use this line. I must obey God rather than men. Kind of shoving it in their face, if you know what I mean. Keep it in context, folks. This is talking about the gospel. It's talking about specifically spreading the gospel, obeying God's command to the Great Commission, rather than obeying the demands of men or the systems in this world to not talk about Christ. So we see a plain statement that we can adopt for ourselves and have faith in even when under pressure situations. These guys stood before the council. This wasn't good. This was the Jewish court that had the right to put people to death. And they said, we must obey God rather than men. On the board, Acts 5.29, truth in context. This doesn't give us the right to act arrogantly in the face of authorities that are against Christ. On the contrary, it's speaking the truth in love, humbly saying, this is what I must do because God said so. So we aren't apologizing for preaching Christ, but we aren't to be arrogant with the truth either. And we're told to honor all authority. We saw Paul do that in Acts 23 on Thursday. Be honorable or respectful towards all authority, even the ones that are acting in evil, even the ones that are rejecting Christ. Always be respectful. Why? They're God-given authority. And if you don't want to face unnecessary judgment from them, you will at least be respectful and humble. And we can still speak the truth as Jesus was full of grace and truth. We can have both. So also remember Jesus told us to be wise as serpents and meek as doves. And one of the trademarks of our Lord's ministry, which, how can you not just love it, is that one of his trademarks was his gentleness. His gentleness was overwhelming to people. While he told the truth. While he didn't compromise truth. And so on the board, he instructed the apostles to do that. In Matthew 10, 16. He said, Behold, I send you out as sheep, In the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. You see how we can be both? Do you see the call to be both? He's not saying be a pushover or be like, you know, aloof to what's going on. Be shrewd as serpents. My spirit will tell you what to say in the time, you know, given, but also be meek as doves. Don't be arrogant with your truth, don't be arrogant toward authorities. Let's go on with our main passage in Acts five twenty nine. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is His Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So here we see another plain statement about obedience. The word obey is involved, but it's a little bit different on the board. God gives His Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. Period. You can't be confused about that. God gives His Holy Spirit to those who obey Him, in verse 32. And notice it uses the word obey, not believe. What's up with that? Because we know from other scriptures that all believers are given the Holy Spirit. So why does it say God gives His Holy Spirit to those who obey Him? We started into this on Thursday. It's a person who believes with his heart who obeys the call of the gospel in other words there's a certain submission there there's a certain recognition of the situation we might also say there's man's will involved a surrender of the will in believing and we can gather this from the word obey this is not some mental ascent this is a call to obey the gospel That's what believing looks like, in other words. And again, the Spirit is saying this in many different ways. I know you've heard this message now for three years. But hopefully he's coming at it from these different angles and directions to fill in the spaces in your soul. To make it all come together in a beautiful, clear picture that is without confusion. It's the man who's willing to surrender his own will and turns to Christ that has saving faith. And therefore, he receives the Holy Spirit as a seal of his salvation. So that's what faith looks like. It's humble, it's repentant, and it's obedient. On Thursday, we were tested to see if we remembered the principle of obeying the gospel. I don't know how many of you, when we went to this verse, recalled it afterward, because we went to it a couple years ago. But this is another clue that supports the gospel reload and how and why the spirit had us do this thing turn again in your bibles to 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6 2nd Thessalonians 1 6 how is obeying part of the gospel Well, that's what the initial decision looks like. That's what the initial saving faith, repentance, this is what it looks like. 2 Thessalonians 1.6 for, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. This is not good, by the way. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This is judgment time. Who gets judged? The ones who refuse to repent. The ones who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Hmm. What's man's problem throughout all of Scripture? On the board, it's disobedience. Disobedience to the Lord. And that's a sign of what's going on in the heart. Do You see the connection? The deeds that a man does are, are from what he really believes. Disobedience to the Lord is the problem. Man's main, pro- main problem has always been a stubborn and unrepentant heart. Where does disobedience come from? It comes from the heart. It's either an unrepentant attitude or a repentant attitude. So it goes back to heart issues. Man's main problem has always been a stubborn and unrepentant heart, just like many Jews had in the Old Testament times. We read about that over and over. And we've also seen it recently in Romans 2, 4 through 5. This is another reminder that saving faith is more than a mental assent to the facts about Jesus Christ. It's a submission or a surrender of the will to him. I give up. I raise the white flag. I'm nothing without you. I'm guilty. I'm sorry. It's a surrender of the will, the human will, that stubborn will to him. And it's nothing less than that. That's conversion. That's being born again. So there's a call from God to obey his gospel. We see it very clearly right there in verse 8. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, verse 17. 1 Peter 4, 17. There's a call from God to man to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter four seventeen. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The believer is one who obeys God. That's the point. That's one of the major fruits of saving faith. The believer enters into a surrender or obedience at the moment of salvation. And his changed heart gives him a lifestyle that continues in obedience. In general, we're not talking about perfect obedience. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an attitude of the heart, a desire to follow him. Obedience is one of the characteristics of the life of a believer. And if there's no obedience to the Lord and no fear of the Lord in someone's life and they say they believe in Christ, I'm going to Guess they have a lip service problem. That's not a good sign. They might need to check their heart with the Lord. Again, look at Acts 5.32. Go back to Acts 5.32. This is where we we went off on this little tangent here about obeying the gospel. I hope and pray that you're seeing a lot of things come together in clarity. And if you're not, I hope you go home and pray about it. I really do. I hope you go home and put your head down and be like, Lord, I don't get it. I'm not seeing this. Show me. And if you seek, you will find. If you're humble before Him, He'll show you. Acts 5.32 And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So again, the point is believers obey God and his gospel. All right, now it's time for a little interjection. And I say this because this morning as I was getting ready, the Lord put this on my heart, something I was going to skip that I didn't think we needed to go over. Obviously, I'm trying to go through the whole book of Acts in three days. So I'm like... All right, well, that one, you know, we've already discussed, or, you know, we don't need to go over that. And the Spirit this morning said, um, go back to that. They need to hear this. So go to Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Acts 6, 1. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Here we have the first electing of deacons in the church. Many of you already understand this principle, but obviously the Spirit is bringing this up this morning for a reason. So you have to ask yourselves, and maybe this is is a problem in your own heart or your own perspective on this issue. Do you want your pastor studying for you and praying for you? Or do you want him being distracted, from the, uh, distracted by the details of church operations? I mean, this is a serious question. I don't know about you, but I want my pastor who has that gift studying for me and praying for me full time. You get it? Full time? Not like, oh, pastor, can you, you know, change the menu on the, at the church? You know, the food on Sunday morning? You know what I'm saying? Don't bother a pastor or a teacher with things that should be operational that are going to distract him from doing what he's called to do for you. And it hurts you. So I think most of us know this, quote-unquote, but maybe it's not a conviction in our heart or we needed a, a change in perspective. Just like last week, how Pastor Collins offered anyone to contact him with questions about the lessons to help with any misunderstandings or confusion. That's awesome. That's part of a pastor's duty as a shepherd. And we have a willing one, thank God. Do you want to be the one to call him to, you know, talk about arranging the tables differently in the church? Right? Or do you want him to fully concentrate on helping your soul have clarity and peace if it's needed? Do you want that beautiful thing that might even, quote-unquote, save your life one day? So we get the point. And that's what deacons are for. And that's why we have our faithful deacons, Todd and Don, to bug them with these things. All right? But they happily take these things upon themselves so the pastor won't have to be disturbed with things that are unnecessary. But spiritual issues, go to the pastor. That's what he wants and that's what is meant. What did I say? Oh, DJ. <laughs> right. Amen. <laughs> really? For your benefit, let's obey this verse. Um, Let him devote himself to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Amen? Amen? Amen. Ah. All right. Let's continue before the Spirit interjected. Let's go to uh, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And here we're going to see something. That's not so plainly stated, but it gives us enough to put two and two together. Here we're going to see a man named Simon, who, as Spurgeon might put it, needed to repent of his repentance. His supposed repentance and faith apparently wasn't a heartfelt contrition, but was from bad motivation. And as we've already seen, God knows the heart. As Peter plainly states... This man's heart wasn't right before God. Look at Acts 8, verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. By the way, this is said about something that on the surface was a good thing. I want to help give people the Holy Spirit. But it was all about him, and it was all about power. So he was caught in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. His heart wasn't right before God. Here we have more evidence in Scripture of repentance being an issue of the heart, not just a mental assent, for some personal gain. And that's what's going on in the churches today, everybody. This is what's so sad about what's going on in in. Christianity even today, common Christianity. And I'm not saying all churches do this or are like this, but a lot of churches are so watered down, they want anyone to come in the church for any reason. In other words, it's okay to come for the wrong reasons. I'm not going to preach the truth. I'm just going to preach grace, you see? And they're cutting out half of the Lord's heart. In the churches, people want things for themselves. And if that's what's going on, then their heart is not right before God. They mentally assent so that they can gain a reputation or to please other people, maybe even please their family members, maybe to gain business contacts, maybe to find a mate, a nice sweet mate, because the world, you know, there's a lot of jerks in the world. Maybe I'll find a nice sweet person at church. I'll say I believe in Christ, even though I'm kind of on the fence, so that I can fit in and find a sweet guy or gal. How's that heart with God, do you think? Is that someone that belongs to God? Pretty obviously not. A religious confession without a heartfelt repentance leaves a person unconverted. And that's what we see with this man, Simon, who Peter... Plainly stated in the word of God, your heart is not right before God. So God looks at the heart, which means he also knows the motivation. He knows why people are in church. We see more plainly stated doctrine in Acts chapter 10. Peter is speaking with the Gentiles whom God set up a meeting with. So go to Acts 10, verse 34, as we continue on in the plainly stated doctrine in the book of Acts. And remember, to this point, the Jews were not to associate with the Gentiles. Even here in the early church, this was like a taboo. They were still under the law, at least mentally, in this way. Look at Acts 10, 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. So, first of all, what we see is that God plays no favorites. No favorites. We've seen this over the years in our church. There's no partiality with God, it's pretty plainly stated. So if you have any prejudices against any people in your heart, against any people that are different than you, no matter how subtle they might be, you need to chuck them out. Throw that garbage out. We should have zero prejudices against any human being because God loves all and came for all. And every man, according to this verse, is welcome to him if they fear him and do what is right. By the way, do you see repentance and faith in this verse? Look at the verse again. Verses 34 and 35. Do you see repentance and faith in this verse? Those words are not mentioned, but I see it. Look at verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. First of all, we have fears him. There's a sign of true repentance that one has when they realize they've sinned against God and they want to turn from it. There's a legitimate remorse for their sin against God. And then we have the phrase, do what is right. That's an indication or a fruit of saving faith of the person who humbly turned to Christ for salvation. They do what is right. They follow him. Remember that? I know my sheep. They hear my voice and they follow me. Doing what is right is an indication that saving faith took place in somebody's heart. That they would humble themselves and turn to the Lord to be saved. So I hope you see it. This is the pattern the Holy Spirit has been giving us, which is present in true believers. Then we see Peter recounting his visit with the Gentiles to the believing Jews who were opposed to what he did. Go to Acts 11, verse 15. Excuse me. Acts eleven fifteen. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Mm. Awesome. Two plainly stated truths we see here. In verse 17, God gives his Holy Spirit to those who believe in Christ. And in verse 18, God is the one who grants repentance that leads to life. Plainly stated. What was their inescapable conclusion what was their inescapable conclusion in this verse when they found out that Gentiles were given the Holy Spirit? What did they conclude on the board? Verses 17 and 18 plainly state, if they received the Holy Spirit by believing in Christ, then God must have granted them repentance. Not might have. Not an option. Not after salvation. This concludes very plainly stated if somebody has the Holy Spirit by faith in Christ then they must have had repentance why because the two are inseparable folks the attitude of repentance in one's heart is not able to be separated from faith in Christ which comes first I mean I think I know but how do we know what happens in everybody's soul How do we know that supernatural thing in the middle that God does in each person's soul when they humble themselves before him? How do we know they don't happen at the same time? We don't, and that's a fine, good thing. But on the board, from this plain statement, it's not possible for someone to believe in Christ and not have repentance granted to them by God. Amen? Simple, beautiful, pure truth. So we see, again, repentance and faith. You can't have one without the other. Enjoy the simplicity of the gospel. It's so simple. The faith of a child, just like a father would deal with his child. It's so incredibly simple. There's no lip service allowed in this house. I need you to repent. I need you to mean what you're saying to me right now. I can tell you, give me lip service. There's no lip service allowed in our father's house. It's real. It's either a surrender or it's not. Receive it with the faith of a child because that's where freedom lies. And don't try to stand in the way of plainly stated doctrine. That's what happens if you try to intellectualize everything. And that's what Satan wants you to do. Remember, Satan in his craftiness leads us away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He's trying to get in there and sneak in there in your hearts, And be like, it's not that simple. And it's not required that repentance is granted by God if someone believes in Christ. Hmm. Be on guard. Look at verse 17 and 18 again. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. All right, allow me to continue for a few more minutes here to be your bus driver as we keep moving along and just kind of see different things on the side of the road. Uh, Another verse to pause at is Acts 13.38. Go to Acts 13.38. Hope you're all having some fun with this. It really is kind of a joy to me. This book and just uh, how the Spirit's using it, and I hope He's using it in your souls. Acts thirteen thirty-eight. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through Him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of. Moses. By now, we know what it means to believe. And here we are encouraged that through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are freed from all things. So it's not about keeping the law, which didn't free anybody. It's not about earning your way with God. It's about surrendering your your human will to God turning to Christ alone as your hope for salvation. Only then can a man be free from the bondages of sin and death. Again, as it says in verse 39, through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things. There's a beautiful, plainly stated truth. We see some more plainly stated doctrine in those who refuse to believe, turn to Acts 13, 46. Acts 13, 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Apparently, It's possible for man to judge himself unworthy of eternal life. How do we know it? Well, that's what it says. It's very plainly stated, isn't it? It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, talking to the Jews. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Paul plainly states this is what just occurred with some of the Jews who rejected Christ as Messiah. Here we see what we've been learning about recently on the board. Man is personally accountable to God in regards to salvation. And if man rejects the grace gift of God, he basically condemns himself. Acts 13.46 We also see that in John 8, 23 and 24. Man is personally accountable to God in regards to salvation. If man rejects the grace gift of God, he basically condemns himself. God honors man's free will. You know that stubborn will that won't give in? That's the will that he honors. And if someone refuses to humbly repent and turn to Christ, their blood is on their own head. So he'll be left to his own unworthiness, according to this verse. He will unfortunately die in his sins, as the Lord said to the stubborn Pharisees. Turn in your Bibles to John 6, ver- I'm sorry, John 8, verse 23. John eight twenty-three. Excuse me. This is a horrible thing, but a, a very harsh reality. John eight twenty three, And he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Another plainly stated doctrine right there from our Lord's mouth. But again, the point on the board man is personally accountable to God in regards to salvation that is inescapable. Even though God's the one that helps him believe and helps him repent in every way, the free will is an issue. If man rejects the grace gift of God, he basically condemns himself. We have more plainly stated doctrine in Acts 14. Go to Acts 14, verse 19. Acts 14, 19. You know, Acts is a book that you might want to recommend people to read because it's so plainly stated. And it's also history in the the making, so to speak. It's history that is revealed of these events that really happened that we can learn from very simply. Acts 14, 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Once again, the sooner we accept plainly stated truth from the word of God, the sooner we will be set free. Life in this world is not meant to be perfect. It never will be. If we follow the Lord with a humble heart, he will give us peace, in the midst of our tribulations, but make no mistake, verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's a plain statement, folks, said by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So are your expectations wrong in this world? Do you have expectations that are making you unhappy because you're believing in the wrong expectations? Paul was just stoned to a point of unconsciousness. They thought he was dead. And he was constantly threatened with death. Yet he had the peace of Christ. Why? Because he accepted the truth of verse 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You're not going to have peace until you accept plainly stated doctrine. On the board... We'll close with this principle. Are you willing to stop living for yourself, trying to make your life all comfortable in this world where you're just visiting, and simply accept it's your calling to live for Christ, which includes tribulations as we enter the kingdom of God? Are you willing, with your free will, to to surrender to this truth? And stop having these ridiculous expectations in this world that the media pummels at you over and over and over and over. This is what you should have. This is what you should have. This is what you should have. You're missing out on this. You're missing out on this. You're missing out on this. How come your life's not better? Your neighbor's got it better than you. Look over the fence and covet your neighbor's whatever. That's why we watch too much darn media. Satan gets in there with his craftiness. And you wonder why you're unhappy. Because you don't submit to this principle on the board. You're not here to live for yourself. You're here to live for Christ. You are born. Predestination. God predetermined you to be born and even to be saved. To be called. And to live for Him. Not for yourself. Are you willing to accept that? Will you accept your calling to live for Christ which includes tribulations as we enter the kingdom of God. What was the verse we just read recently? I think it was in 1 Peter, where it says, If judgment must begin with the household of God, which means, guess what? It must. Not eternal judgment, thank God. But there's a form of judgment upon believers, even, because we're sinners and we're guilty. There's a reaping what you sow, whatever you want to call it. There's some type of judgment that must begin with the household of God. The sooner you accept that instead of run from it and hide from it is the sooner you're going to be set free. And God wants us to be set free. He's like, we stop it and embrace your calling because then you're going to have peace and you're going to live for me and you're going to have no regrets in heaven. So we'll close with verse 22. Notice what Paul was doing for his fellow believers strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So, the Spirit's telling us to be encouraged. Accept your calling, if you're willing to humble yourself before the Lord and His will for your life. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word and your spirit. We thank you for revealing these plainly stated truths to us so that we have nowhere to go. We thank you for putting us in a corner. We thank you for confronting us with your truth because we know it's out of love and we know it's out of your desire for us to be free. Father, we ask that you help us humble ourselves before you, help us embrace your truth, and help us simply follow him. Father, we ask that you bless our entire congregation and those listening to your word today. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.